there. I think you might want to pull up a chair. You know, I've been talking about things like, well, I don't know, the United States being in charge of eugenics. Um, where did eugenics come from? All roads lead toward the United States. And I would like to put together a more um, descriptive piece today as far as why I think hiding in plain sight is the master manipulator in all this, which would be the United States run by the U.S. military. So why would I be saying these things about this country that's just all about democracy, right? Actually, only a republic. Because they've just painted this whole Cold War deal that, you know, Russia's a bad guy. We got to do this to hide from Russia. You know, it's all a big staged act, right? And what's going on in the meantime? Well, a lot of people are being harmed. So let's take a look at why I would say hiding in plain sight, the country that everybody should fear the most, is actually the one that everybody appears to think is the safest. <laughs> Pretty interesting stuff, right? Oh, before I get started, let me drag this file up real quick. Um, I put together a page called Research. How it works, what they do is they don't do any studies or any research, okay? And let me just give you, I, I updated my website, psychopathinyourlife.com. Click on the blog page, okay? I'm keeping track of any possible studies. First one, the CDC tells us the first symptoms of radiation sickness are typically nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. These symptoms will start within minutes to days after the exposure, will last from minutes up to several days, and may come and go. There is a great individual variation in how people respond to radiation, and the process is not fully understood. Radiation, R or RF, is classified by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the IARC, as possibly carcinogenic to humans. This is based on the findings of a possible link in at least one study between cell phone use and a specific type of brain tumor. One study. Because RF radiation is a possible carcinogen, and smart meters give off RF radiation, it is possible that smart meters could increase cancer risk. Still, it isn't clear what risk, if any, there might be from living in a home with a smart meter. It would be nearly impossible to conduct a study to prove or disprove a link between living in a house with smart meters and cancer because people have so many sources of exposure to RF and the level of exposures from this source is so small. Do you understand how this wording is happening? See how it says that they can't understand how people might complain about these things because the exposure is so small, but yet there are no studies about the exposure, right? Because the amount of RF radiation you could be exposed to from a smart meter is much less than what you could be exposed to from a cell phone. It is very unlikely that living in a house with a smart meter increases risk of cancer. What they also do is they will flip the words around, right? They'll start talking about non-ionized radiation, which is the stuff coming from the cell phones versus the ionized or the gamma coming from the smart meters. 
The World Health Organization has promised to conduct a formal assessment of the risk from RF exposure, but this report is not yet available. Let me see here. What else do I have here? Oh, I found a cluster of them, and these were um, at the end of my um, website on the blog page. Um, I listed. I found somebody who is keeping track of all of the known studies for cell phones, and I just put them all at the bottom there. Okay, but these are what the um, leading experts have said about the CDC. At this time, we do not have the science to link health problems to cell phone use. Scientific studies are underway to determine whether cell phone use may cause health effects. See, this is how the U.S. got to be the most dangerous person country on the planet, dangerous to every other country, <laughs> just by this simple trick, right? They took the leadership role... They claimed, 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 claimed all of these things, right? But yet they have no studies to back them up. They just put out a bunch of people that look like they're authoritative, right? Okay, this is from the FCC, which is the Federal Communications. There is no scientific evidence to date that proves that wireless phone usage can lead to cancer or a variety of other health effects including headaches, dizziness, or memory loss. And this was from the, our friends at the FDA. The totality of the available scientific evidence continues to not support adverse health effects in humans caused by exposure at or under the current radio frequency energy exposure limits. And this one is, I can barely see it, National Institute of Health, I think it is. There is currently no consistent evidence that non-ionizing radiation increases cancer risk in humans. See, they, and then they'll, they'll flip from non-ionizing to ionizing is where they'll trick you with the words. So anyway, so go look at the end of my website. I have all of the um, known cell phone studies there. But here again... Can you find any studies about smart meters? Well, go look. I have looked and looked and looked. And that's how they got to be the big bad wolf by, by fear. And imagine this because, and I'll insert this here while I'm thinking about it. Um, you know, I've been looking at the differences between the United States and Russia. It's kind of suspicious how the United States does all this evil stuff over in the Marshall Islands. And then Russia does it over in the Polygon. And, um, yeah, almost kind of like it's orchestrated when you start to look at the dates in a row, right? And so, you know, it's just it's just the evil villain um, scenario that they've shown us in cartoons, in movies, in books. Russia has played the evil caricature for ever, ever since history got started 70 years ago or so, right? So you always have to play an antagonist, right, to, to present yourself as the hero. So essentially they kept building up this idea that the Russians were so evil and the U.S. was so great that now, probably in most people's minds, they would probably think that there was some validity to that, right? Or maybe they've heard it so much, they think, hey, yeah, you know, I've heard this so much or seen this so much that because we've been pelted with all of this, Russia is bad, Russia is the villain, just like in comic books, right? This is a staged event, and the United States is the home 
of the big experiment. Okay, so let me play you this clip and then I'll be back with some. I put together a list of timelines for this eugenics business, right, to take a closer look at it all because I've talked about it here and there and all these other places. So I took a little closer look at, and believe it or not, the people that started the original eugenics magazine or newspaper, whatever they call it, is still in, <laughs> still going on today. <laughs> I think the one we're looking for hiding in plain sight is, in fact, the United States. So let me play this clip here. This is called... The clip is from eight years ago and is called The Twisted Logic Behind America's Shameful Eugenics History. And you'll also note these patterns that the so-called outcome in good always, always outweighs the bad, okay? Always. Every situation, it always outweighs the bad. Dangerous um, shots and medications and stuff that kill a lot of people well not such a bad mistake because after all because of this mistake we got this right like they're still congratulating the people that um did the early uh, gynecology things on slave women they're, they're still i mean these people have a really dark past and it's really not in the past that's the part that amazes me i mean i don't know that i would join an organization of people that thought lobotomies were a good idea and then roll forward, they also, all these people thought that opioids were a good idea, right? If this is not eugenics in a big human experiment run by a bunch of psychopaths and eugenicists, I don't know what to tell you. So let me just be quiet here and play this clip. Because I found this clip to be really interesting and telling, okay? So let's just listen. Not new that the concern about the potential harm that can come from tinkering with the genetic code is really not new. And you say that people are sort of predispositioned to have a negative view of it because of, of our history in this country. Take us through that and tell us why this is either the same or different. So uh, I'll start by saying I think the techniques of today are very different than what I'm about to talk about. But if we go back in history uh, to the late 1800s and the early 1900s, we have something called the American Eugenics Movement. And the American Eugenics Movement started with some scientists who were not terribly unlike our prominent scientists who are here with us today, who are incredibly well-intentioned, but who at the time really misunderstood the science. Starting with some really basic concepts of genetics, which some of you may have learned early in genetics classes, like Mendelian genetics, so the idea that traits are simply, you know, that there's two characteristics of a trait or two alleles for a trait, and you inherit them just that simply, and every trait from eye color to everything else just has two little alleles, except traits are incredibly complex. And they thought, you know what? If this is true, if we have this kind of concept of heredity, then we should be able to breed much better populations. Uh, and we can do so through selective breeding by trying to encourage people who have what we think of as preferential traits to have children together. And we can, by doing so, get rid of some really undesirable traits such as, and the ones they were really focused on were things like criminality, as if that's just one trait, um, or epilepsy, uh, or imbecility. That was a really popular one, which is we just had to get rid of these imbeciles. And you can see this kind of um, you know, progression here, which is different characterizations of imbecility that we just have to get rid of. And you might think this sounds crazy, and it does to us today, which is one of the safeguards we have against the kind of eugenic policies that we might go down. But um, as you'll see in some of the flat slides that now follow this one, there's a lot 
uh, of things that were incorporated into this. So what happened is a lot of states started having better baby competitions where people would actually then have photographs of the multiple generations, which they measured by things like height um, or uh, color of skin or color of hair. And it was used and incorporated to try to combat things like immigration policies, because people believed that immigrant populations were bringing bad traits into the population, or to try to increase the amounts of sort of intelligence that they thought we might have in the population, and to decrease some of the more uh, problematic traits. But at the same time, we had a lot of mental institutions. Um, and mental institutions across the country uh, were used for every different kind of person. So things like criminals, to things like um, feeble-minded people, to people who we thought were insane. I mean, this was the solution to a lot of different problems in society, was just institutionalized people. Over time, in the early 1900s, some of the states started having problems where uh, it started to become a little bit unfavorable to do this. So Virginia had a good idea. Virginia thought, we're going to pass one of these statutes, and the first person that we are going to ultimately sterilize is going to be a person who comes from a family of feeble-minded individuals. And in the case of Buck v. Bell, what happened was Carrie Buck's mother was already institutionalized and had been deemed an imbecile. Now, mind you, they didn't query what kind of education she'd received. This must have had a hereditary component. This is Carrie Buck. Carrie Buck was her 18-year-old daughter, 17 here in the picture, um, who uh, was also deemed to be an imbecile because she could only read at an eighth grade level when she was 17 years old. And she had a daughter, Vivian, um, out of wedlock, and this was before she was institutionalized. The assessment that Vivian was, she must be an imbecile as well. So Carrie was going to be the first person that Virginia was going to sterilize. And um, it turned out that Carrie was represented by an attorney who tried to actually prevent her from being sterilized and argued that she wasn't such an imbecile after all and that she had rights under the U.S. Constitution in particular, that it was cruel and unusual punishment to sterilize her and that it would violate her due process of law. And the United States Supreme Court receives this case looks at all of the evidence before them, that is that Carrie Buck's mother is an imbecile, that Carrie is an imbecile, that Vivian is apparently an imbecile because she doesn't look quite right. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's one of our most famous jurists, who has penned some of the most famous opinions uh, that stand to this day, wrote in a very important opinion that it was okay to go ahead and sterilize Carrie Buck. And the reason it was okay was because three generations of imbeciles is enough. Right around this time, early 1900s, getting closer to World War II, Germany had also started adopting these broad eugenic policies. Mein Kampf, written by Hitler, adopts a lot of the language of the American eugenics movement, and there was a lot of cross-dialogue between American eugenicists and Germans. As we see what the progression of that policy was in Nazi Germany, the eugenicists in this country, that word eugenics was not a terrible word as it is now. It was actually a mainstream and good word. It simply meant better babies and better health. As that became incorporated into Nazi Germany and people saw the horrors to which that could be taken, they distanced themselves from the policies of eugenics. And we now have this horrible specter of eugenics that colors the entire field. So it's impossible to have this conversation without people immediately going there and assuming 
what's going to happen if we do something like mitochondrial transfer is the next step is massive sterilization of everyone or massive eugenic policies of just trying to have blonde hair and blue-eyed kids. I don't think we'll go there. I think we've learned a lot from the history and the science is quite different. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess it's who do you believe, right? I would have to say that this is a pretty clever trick, right? Everybody all these years, Germany, don't trust Germany. Look what they were doing in Germany. Don't trust those Germans. Well, 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 let's take a look at who shouldn't be trusted in this picture. Okay, I pulled together a little timeline here so we could understand all this better. This is just, I have to say this, in the world of marketing, this is brilliant, okay? And it's right here. And these groups are still are still working today. <laughs> I wish I was making all this up. But if you've ever doubted me saying that the United States is, in fact, the testing ground of a big experiment, well, pull up a chair. Let's take a look. <laughs> okay, I pulled together a timeline here, so let me go through here. Okay. Okay, the American eugenics movement was rooted in the biological determinist ideas of Sir Francis Galton, G-A-L-T-O-N, which originated in the 1880s. Francis Galton, an English statistician, demographer, and ethnologist, and cousin of Charles Darwin, monkey man, right, coined the term eugenics in 19, no, excuse me, I got lost on the Darwin deal. Okay, this Francis Galton is the cousin of Charles Darwin, the monkey guy, coined the term eugenics in 1883. Galton defined eugenics as the study of agencies under social control that may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations, either physically or mentally. After the 1890 U.S. Census, people began to believe that immigrants who were of Nordic or Anglo-Saxon ancestry were greatly favored over Southern and Eastern Europeans, specifically Jews or Middle Eastern people who were seen by some eugenicists to be inferior. Probably got this idea from movies, but I'll get back to that later. In 1896, many states enacted... Mark, please. I got somebody coming up on my side here. Please lay down. Lay down. It's okay. Lay down. In 1896, many states enacted marriage laws with eugenics criteria, prohibiting anyone who was epileptic, imbecile, or feeble-minded from marrying. The first state to introduce a compulsory sterilization pill bill was Michigan. Indiana began the became the first state to enact sterilization legislation in 1907, followed closely by Washington, California, and Connecticut in 1909. Sterilization rates across the country were relatively low, California being the sole exception, until the 1927 
that, that was one we were just talking, a case they were just talking about, Buck versus Bell. Buck, that was the Buck versus Bell case. Okay, and that was upheld under the U.S. Constitution, the forceful sterilization of patients. Um, in the late 19th century, many scientists, and we always thought scientists were our friends, right? I'm not saying everybody that's a scientist, because I believe a lot of people became scientists because they thought they were doing something noble, right? They didn't probably associate themselves with the eugenics crowd, <laughs> Many scientists who were concerned about the population leaning too far away from the favored Anglo-Saxon superiority due to a rise in immigration from Europe partnered with other interest groups to implement immigration laws that could be justified on the basis of genetics. It's always about the others, right? All this fear about the others. The others are going to be getting something you should have, right? Well, that's the biggest trick of all, right? And then, um, so then that was back in 1907, and I had this kind of out of place here, 1903, okay. In 1903, they had a group, and this group, believe it or not, is still around today, okay, <laughs> called the American Breeders Association, or the ABA, was the first national membership-based organization promoting genetic and eugenic research in the United States. And how this trick worked, which is pretty brilliant, okay? And I'm not saying brilliant in a good way. I'm saying brilliant. They introduced this idea of genetics into the agriculture business, okay? And then you'll see here how it just morphed into the rest of us, right? Okay, so let me start back here. In 1903, the ABA, which is the American Breeders Association, was a national analog of those regional agriculture societies active in the support of scientific agriculture. I would argue that the agriculture context of the association was crucial for the development of American genetics and for the course of the American eugenics movement. Because, this is why I think, because um, it encouraged, the agriculture people encouraged early attention in this thing called Mendelian. I'll spell it for you. M-E-N-D-E-L-I-A-N. Mendelian is a biometric and chronology studies resulting in such widespread adoption of such methods by American scientists because it was about the extensiveness of the na nation's agriculture research system, okay? So, um, so that's how they tied in these social aims, okay? Um, yeah, pretty tricky how that happened. Okay, the AGA disseminates progress in these fields through its publication, Journal of Heredity, which these things are still around, okay? Um, let me get back on track here. Um, um, early issues of this, I, I looked up this magazine, okay, AGA, and now it's called um, Journal of Heredity. But it started off as right there, right, right there in the title, right? The trend in topics that have been published in the journal reflect the history of the discipline of genetics. Because I was curious to see, is this 
magazine or this scientific research still going on? Well, yes, it is, <laughs> just under a different name. So, so it was described, it said, early issues included many papers on eugenics, particularly under the editorial leadership of the journal's first two editors-in-chief, Paul Poppins and R.C. Cook. Emphasis on eugenics in the journal declined throughout the 1940s and 1950s as support for the topic waned in the scientific community and the general public. When Cook's daughter, Barbara Kuhn, K-U-H-M, took over as editor in 1962 after her father's 40-year service, the subject of eugenics was essentially dropped. Early topics of interest included comparative color inheritance in mammals, as explored in a series of articles that served as precursors to work applying enzyme kinetics to develop, developmental genetics. Determination of the number of human chromosomes, genetic histories of a number of types of livestock, including, yeah, they, they got into all this livestock stuff to start with, okay? This foreshadowed modern work in intestinal tumors in which there are differences between cells. Oh, I don't know, DNA, I don't know why that is there, but. Um, the ABA was formed specifically to investigate and report on hereditary and the human race and emphasis the value of superior blood and the menace to society of inferior blood. Mem <coughs> membership <coughs> Excuse me. Membership of this ABA included Alexander Graham Bell, Stanford President, David Starr Jordan, Luther Burbank, the American Association for the Study and Prevention of Infant Mortality was one of the first organizations to begin investigating infant mortality rates in terms of eugenics. They promoted government intervention in attempts to promote the health care of future citizens. Yeah, this is strange. Um, what you're looking for is the American Association for the Study and Prevention of Infant Mortality. And what they're doing with all these things, I'll just interject here, is, you know, they're doing actual studies on infants and stuff, right? And these people are sponsoring those studies in all their magazines and stuff. Okay, um... In addition to the Eugenics Record Office, also known as the ERO, several national organizations promoted eugenics at professional and popular levels. In 1907, in England, the Eugenics Education Society, later the Eugenics Society, was founded. So in 1907, they start eugenics in our cousin country over there in the UK, right? Okay. Um... Let me see here. I'm going to see if I can turn the volume down and scream at him to stop. Let me see if that works. Rocco, stop! Okay, let's see if that worked. And I just, <laughs> the one time I tried to test the microphone, I just screamed right into it. Okay, so, okay, back here. So, 1907 in England. Here's looking at you, UK. In 1940, the American Breeders Associate, 
Association broadened its scope and became the American Genetic Association. So that's what it is now. They cleverly use the names just a little bit differently, right? So American Breeders Association in 1914 became American Genetic Association, okay? Today, AGA's interests encompass evolutionary diversity in genomics across subject areas, including conservation, genetics, gene functions, genetics. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I think they're up to a lot of things at the American Breeders Association. The foundation sponsored three national conferences on race betterment in 1914, 1915, and 1928. So they started its own eugenics registry in cooperation with the ERO, which formed in 1923. AES quickly gave rise to 28 state committees that work to bring eugenics into the mainstream of American life. Under the direction of Mary T. Watts, the AES Education Committee used state fairs to popularize eugenics. And I'll be getting much more into these state fairs later. Okay, I have a whole file about them. If I have time today, I'll pop it open because state fairs, big, 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 big key point in the marketing here, okay? <laughs> And not what those people on social media are saying, these state fairs. That, anyway, I'll get, I have to get back focused here. Um, so, yeah, I uncovered something pretty big about those state fairs that entered my brain. So, okay, so, so this Mary Watts and his committee used state fairs to popularize eugenics, okay? Okay, um, and they had, ex exhibits with all these laws and uh, okay the American Breeders Association was established in 1903 as an outgrowth of the American Agricultural College and experiment stations so it started with, here again I mean all this um, stuff with these vaccines and stuff if you remember it all starts with cross-contaminating us with animals right <laughs> So it's pretty amazing to me that all this eugenic stuff also got slid in there under the guise of animals, right? So, okay, so established in 1903, American Agriculture Colleges and Experiment Stations, it was one of the first scientific organizations in the United States that recognized the importance of Mendel's Laws and its section on eugenics was the first scientific body to support eugenic research. So here we have our beginning of all this stuff, right? 1903. Lots of threes in that number two, huh? With a membership of around 1,000 established scientists and agriculture breeders, the ABA played a major role in legitimizing the American eugenics movement but avoided popular campaigns and legislative lobbying. However, it shared members and F officers with several other organizations that had wider social agendas, notably a group called the Race Betterment Foundation, Race Betterment Foundation, the Galton, G-A-L-T-O-N Society, 
and the American Eugenics Society. See how they all just kind of happen to loop around each other? Okay, then that was, I was just ranting from 1903, okay. Now we're up to 1906. J.H. Kellogg provided funding to help found the Race Betterment Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan. So 1903, they're on to the animals, and in 1906, we got the Kellogg's in there, Race Betterment Foundation, and I'm not going to go into the whole Kellogg's thing here because I did a show about it. Kellogg's was in the title. Kellogg's was heavily into boys and masturbating. Okay, moving right along, I was just at 1906, 1910, the Eugenics Record Office, also known as the ERO, was founded in the United States. The ERO had a different emphasis from the Birth Control League, which sought fewer children for laboring classes. The ERO felt that ultimate economic betterment should be sought by breeding better people, not fewer of the existing sort. By 1910, there was a large and dynamic network of scientists, reformers. Did I read that? I don't think so. These scientists... Well, I'll read it again because I really can't remember. Okay, 1910, there was a large and dynamic network of scientists, reformers, and professionals, <laughs> professionals meaning the doctors, engaged in national eugenics projects and actively promoting eugenics legislation. I think I just talked about the eugenics record office, um, but the eugenics record office, the ERO, was founded in Cold Spring Harbor, New York in 1911 by the renowned biologist, and you want to jot this name down, this name comes up a lot, <laughs> Charles H. Davenport, D-A-V-E-N-P-O-R-T. You'll run across old Charlie's name quite a bit in this eugenics business. He was using money from both the Harriman Railroad Fortune and the Carnegie Institute. Okay. The first international eugenics conference was held, giving you the side eye, UK, was held at London University in 1912. Although representatives from a number of nations, the Congress was revealed the strength of the movement, especially in England, Germany, and the United States. Between, and that was just 1912, okay? So now we're moving along at a rapid pace here. Between 1915 in 1920, Federated Women's Clubs in every state of the Deep South held a critical role in establishing public eugenic institutions that were segregated by sex. For example, the Legislative Committee of the Federal Florida State Federation of Women's Clubs successfully lobbied to institute a eugenics institution for the mentally retarded that was segregated by sex. Their aim was to separate mentally retarded men and women in order to prevent them from breeding more feeble-minded individuals. 
In October 1916, Margaret Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the United States. Several months later, she founded the Birth Control Review. Boy, that um, Planned Parenthood really turned out to be quite the evil group, didn't it? I, th I thought they were all like, hey, that sounds great. They're helping the poor. See how they sell propaganda, right? Because my whole life, I thought Planned Parenthood was probably a good idea because I never went there myself, but I thought in my head that it was a good thing because it was helping the poor. See how that got sold in my head somehow? Um, and they're the ones that kids could walk in there with, on the first appointment and walk out with dangerous hormones. Okay, so anyway, so that was 1916. The Galton Society, founded in New York City, 1918, G-A-L-T-O-N Society, was the most overtly racist of the American eugenics organizations. Its members use physical anthropology to confirm their bigoted notions about the supposed superiority of the Nordic race. And if you're involved with this country, and you're, of, let's say, of another particular race other than white, I, I would be very cautious because, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I don't, th you know, I, I think they've got a lot of uh, people of color thinking that they're they're going to be their savior. And I, I would really, I'd really question your thinking because it appears to me, with all the talk about racism that comes out of this country, it appears to me that these people are the true racists. But hey, I'm just guessing here, right? Give me a second here. Okay, so. As late as the 1920s. ERO, the American Eugenic Society, collected a mass of family pedigrees and provided training for eugenics. I don't understand. And, oh, they, they, what they did was um, they put together all this marketing Marketing, here we are marketing, right? Because everybody, this is what I gained out of looking through all this stuff, that people became, like, really afraid of having anybody who they perceived as mental, right? Okay. Um, and this is all leading up to 1921. A temporary measure was passed to slow down the open door on immigration. In order for this entire scam to work, it had to be driven by A, fear of death, fear of others. And without that, you know, they got people to go into the gulag and work for 100, you know, 20 years before they got freed. Why? Because they thought they might get killed. Really? So you think the trade-off going to the gulag for 20 years was a good idea? See how see how the fear of fear of death has driven this entire boat here, right? Okay, um, so in 1921, measures against immigrants. The Immigrant Restriction League, probably from all those um, movies about, they called them the Japanese, they called them the Japs. Um, very derogatory, um, you know, building all these fears in everybody's brains. But I, I got to get back to that later. Okay, so when I get to the movie part of it segment down the road here next, you'll see more why... Um, you need to understand this to understand how movies play the role in all of this. So, okay. Um, so in 1921, they had this Immigration Restriction League, and uh, was the first entity to be closely associated with eugenics 
and was founded in 1894 by three recent Harvard graduates. See how we got these scientists and these esteemed scholars and all these people in our minds to be so elevated as always doing good. So let me see these three. I got to make this type a little bit bigger. Sorry. I got it so small that I can't read it. Um, okay. These three Harvard graduates. Okay. And also, I'll be getting back into this later because um, we were sold this idea that um, this last bill they passed as far as um, Inflation Reduction Act, well, that, that, that really, that bill was really to fund nuclear. <laughs> My brain is too full right this second. But yeah, that whole thing about that was just to fund nuclear in Silicon Valley because they love that government money. But anyway, so... Um, and that's the part about these people. They act so superior in their expensive suits and expensive cars. And they always have to rob their money from the government, right? They always, they, they disdain us to the point that they will look the other way every time when some harm is coming to one of us, okay? Their level of disdain comes out in how they refer to us as these people, you know, the lower class, the middle class. And their disdain is so, so visible, right? But then yet, they always have to feed at the trough of the government tax money, okay? To get their riches and their expensive Italian suits. So, let's always keep that straight in this picture, okay? So anyway, so, um, always seen as inferior. Okay, so the overall goal, it was founded by these three recent Harvard graduates, which sent me off on that tirade, okay? Three recent Harvard graduates in 1921 were after the Immigration Restriction League, okay? The overall goal of the League was to prevent what they perceived as inferior races from diluting the superior American racial stock, those who were of the upper-class Anglo-Saxon heritage, and they began working to have stricter anti-immigration laws in the United States. The League lobbied for a liter literacy test for immigrants as they attempted to enter the United States based on the belief that literacy rates were low among inferior rates. Eugenicists believed that immigration, immigrants were often degenerate, had low IQs, and were afflicted with shiftlessness, alcoholism, and insubordination. According to eugenicists, all of these problems were transmitted through genes. Literacy test bills, literacy test bills were vetoed by presidents in 1897, 1913, and 1915. Eventually, President Wilson's second veto was overruled by Congress in 1917. So I guess they wanted literacy tests, right? Okay, um, well, you know, doesn't this also smack of a big experiment, too? Kind of like always making adjustments along the way. I've said for years that they're making this up as they go along, and I don't know. It just appears more and more to me that that is probably true. So, okay, so, um, I had some more here. Oh, before I forget... There was a group in Germany, because this, this really starts to connect 
U.S., Germany, and uh, the U.K. with this eugenics business, right? Um, so Germany, what happened was um, that group of them that were over there, all their intellectuals and stuff, when they fled Germany, where'd they go? Well, they started at um, Columbia University. <laughs> that whole program in Germany, when it got broken up, by the intellectuals, the Marxists, and all those people, it came to the United States, and they started Columbia University, which was also founded by the Pulitzer Prize people, which is where most of our journalists come from. <laughs> so that little aside, um, I also looked into eugenics as a religious aspect, right? Eugenics has had a religious dimension. Galton suggested that it should function as a religion. And this proposal was echoed by George Bernard Shaw, Bertrand Russell, and others in the United States shortly after the turn of the century. The American Journal of Eugenics advertised itself by noting that it was formerly known as Lucifer the Light Bearer. So, it gets crazier, doesn't it? So, it said the United States shortly after the... The American Journal of Eugenics advertised itself by noting it was formerly known as Lucifer the Light Bearer. So, take that for whatever it's worth, right? And remember the um, Statue of Liberty has that torch, which these people talk about being the light of Lucifer. Um, right there, welcome to the light of Lucifer land. We call it the United States to some... Okay, um, and this was a pretty good article. It's called Eugenics in America. When most people think of eugenics, they think of racial engineering, the Nazis, and their um, Aryan groups meant to root out by mass extermination all inferior races and eventually end up with a purely Nordic race. But what is most forgot, but what most forget is that the first documented country to openly promote and force race laws upon its people was actually America in 1908. In 1933, when Hitler came to power in Germany, the Nazi party was able to utilize state-sponsored propaganda to sway the German people into supporting the validity of eugenics, a mass deportation, depopulation plan masquerading as race science, and all of the barbaric race laws that came along with the notion. But who in the year 1908 held enough power in America to bring about such a nightmare? Who was able to sway the America pe American people into accepting similar racial hygiene eugenics laws? And you'll also note they refer to them as racial hygiene. Hygiene, okay? Racial hygiene. The answer is the Rockefeller Foundation, founded in 1913. See, Rockefeller Foundation was founded in 1913, and we've got all this other stuff going on, right? Okay, um... But what, but what most don't know is that they also set the stage for Big Pharma as well, all the while destroying the best natural medicine and cures in the process. 
1935 sterilization laws had been enacted in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, and Germany. But the efficiency of the German eugenics caused trouble. Okay. Um, more than 27, to be exact, by 1936, 35 states joined the shameful decades-long utopian campaign to medically engineer racial supremacy. Their eventual goal was to eliminate as much as 90% of the American of the population from the reproductive future of America. The preferred methods, I'm reading from this piece here, the preferred methods were gas chambers and other forms of euthanasia. The first public euthanasia legislation was introduced into the Ohio legislature in 1908. That measure was unsuccessful as were other death panel bills. The next best thing was forced surgical sterilization under specific state authority. This policy in many states was validated as a law of the land in the United States by one of America's most stellar journalists. So that was back to that case I was talking about earlier in Virginia. So in 1927, they said that, hey, she was an imbecile. That was okay to sterilize her. You know, here's what I think, and I just think this. Obviously, I wasn't there. Um, they, you know, they set up this case to open the floodgates to sterilize more imbecile people, right? I mean, why else would they do this, right? To publicize it? It is better for all the world, Justice Holmes infamously wrote, if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offsprings for crime or to let them starve for their imbecil imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. America's eugenics movement, powered by the opulent Carnegie Institution, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harman Railroad Fortune, sought to extend its reach into Germany. Rockefeller and Carnegie spent Depression-era millions to finance the worst Nazi doctors and race institutes. Hitler promptly implemented American preceptions and stunning, with stunning ferocity and velocity. Among the chief recipients of Rockefeller money was top Nazi doctors. Anyway, this Nazi stuff is not true, but part of this is probably likely true, right? Um, because the origins likely of the money and the horror that everybody else claims came out of Germany, I am saying it looks to me like it all originated from the United States, right? I mean, I didn't show a year or so ago that those SS those SS guards from Germany were really the same as the SS from this country, just remodified. So this is just a big stage movie set. What the end goal is for murdering us and themselves at the same time is a mystery to me. Um, and I'll close with this one thing. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'll get back to this other stuff later about... Um, I have a whole file as far as these um, fairs they were doing, these um, world's fairs and stuff all around the world, but 
it's a little bit much for right now, so I will get back with that later. Um, because the World's Fairs and the movies all tie together with how this stuff all got propagated and sold. And it also got sold that the United States is a huge white savior. Come here, trust us, we love you. And it really, it's the evil empire, right? Um, hiding in plain sight, as I've always said. So anyway, I'm going to be going here so now. So anyway, be safe out there. Goodbye for now. I'm going to go, I've got to wait for a few minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, because it's timely. Um, we just had a huge train accident in Palestine, Palestine is how it's pronounced, Ohio. And likely it will be the biggest disaster in U.S. history. Those poor people are getting lied to and all kinds of stuff, but not my point right now. But I certainly hope you have heard me loud and clear about those distilled water machines. So anyway, so let me talk about, um, you know, that we had this act that came out and it was called the um, Inflation Reduction Act, okay? And um, they're also pushing hydrogen. I looked into hydrogen, pretty dangerous, but anyway, let me stick with this. A couple titles, I do searches, just go to your news, go to Google or wherever and just type in nuclear, check for news, right? First story came out of, and this, this is in the last oh, two days, three days maybe, okay. First one that popped up was, why Silicon Valley is so hot on nuclear energy? The sweeping Inflation Reduction Act that President Joe Biden signed last week includes $369 billion in funding to help combat climate change. As part of that, the law includes significant help for the nuclear energy industry. And I was reading along this article, and it said, this, I'll quote this article, it said, if investors are putting money into nuclear now, that's because they think they can make money. And I can only think they believe they will make money because they think that there's a big opportunity to have, let me see here, to have federal government pick up the big part of the tab, says this person. Here again, rich off the backs of the workers while they hate us behind our backs or actually to our faces. I, I just find that so interesting and I have to say it again. They also, all of these Silicon Valley people, also have smart meters on their homes. Are they too stupid to know that part of their plan is also annihilating themselves at the same time? I don't know. I don't know. I would guess they may be too stupid because of coming from families and all those hormones are taking, but I don't know. I don't know. I ran into a few people that I knew from when I worked in Silicon Valley and well, everybody's ghosting me, right? Um, but interesting thing, several people, and I mean several of them are actually married to transgender women. So I'm not sure if that's part of the deal to keep climbing up the club is to marry a tranny yourself, but Something weird's going on with all this transgender stuff, but anyway, so back on course here. Okay, so another interesting thing. The universities are now into the cash grab, right? <clears throat> Funny how that works, right? All those special university people. And get this. Several universities to experiment with micro-nuclear power, and this was February the 10th, so that was last week, okay? 
they're, they're now what they're pushing is um, well those big plants are expensive and time-consuming to build so how about if we do these micro things so you see where this money starting to drift off to first we got the Silicon Valley people and their, their hands out now we got the universities in there and then there was a um, article in Money Watch that said nuclear micro reactors to hit the market February the 10th 2023 coming to a campus near you nuclear mic micro reactors small but meaningful amounts of electricity can pulse from a new generation of micro nuclear reactors universities are taking interest <laughs> another article what the climate bill does for the nuclear industry information is so easy to find Production tax credit for existing nuclear power plants and here's the part that gets really creepy Okay, because a lot of the existing nuclear plants are very old Okay, and now there's this push to say oh did we say that 40 years was about their lifespan? No, no, we made a mistake. We think these things should run for a hundred years <laughs> In the meantime, they haven't figured out the storage issues, but hey minor details, right? Okay, so There was this article called production tax credit for existing nuclear power plants starting in 2024 and, and this is directly from the bill this isn't me making stuff I, I picked this up from the bill okay starting in 2024 and running through 2032 God knows everybody's gonna be alive through that period right <laughs> utilities utilities will be able to get a credit of $15 per megawatt hour for every person they kill I'm just kidding <laughs> If they kill one of us like them them zapping me with more electricity and more dirty electricity to radiate my house has an advantage to certain people in the government because it will kill me off but it will also make me not a productive citizen paying my electricity bills so there's always a trade-off right <laughs> so they get this tax credit of $15 and what does that mean the price of power if the price of power rises above $25 per megawatt hour then the credit will gradually decrease but it doesn't phase out completely until energy prices reach around 44 dollars per megawatt hour so they always have these very complicated plan every plant is different and some plants have a different revenue model but we can say that this credit will offer a reprieve from the low revenues that have forced more than a dozen reactors to close Oh, I get it. So now the story is, is that the low revenues have forced reactors to close. Oh, I got it. Okay. To, I'm continuing on. To be eligible for the full $15 per megawatt hour base tax credit, a nuclear power plant operator has to pay workers operating and doing maintenance on the power plant, power, power plant prevailing wage requirements according to the nuclear energy institute oh they're worried about the workers rates Here, here's the trick they're probably hiring them and paying them really good wages because they're saving money on not giving them any safety equipment right <laughs> okay um and this there was a, there, here here's a here's the catcher here bill gates is in the nuclear business okay and we know bill gates is an actor but anyway Several companies in the United States are working to commercialize new nuclear power plant designs that are meant to be safer 
and with a smaller capacity, making them ideally cheaper to build and maintain as well. For example, Bill Gates, he has a nuclear innovation company called Terra Power, T-E-R-R-A Power, all one word, P-O-W-E-R, is developing a couple of advanced reactor designs, one of which is going to be built at a retiring coal facility in Wyoming as part of a demonstration program in partnership with the U.S. government. Ding, ding, ding. Of course, it's in partnership because we're paying for our own death, right? <laughs> advanced, advanced nuclear reactors could benefit from the IRA. What is the IRA? Well, I lost track. Oh, the IRA is Inflation Reduction Act. Okay. <laughs> Advanced nuclear reactors could benefit from the IRA or the Advanced Inflation Reduction Act by way of the Clean Electricity Production Tax Credit, a technology agnostic production credit which can be applied toward emission-free power generators that goes online after 2025. <laughs> the Clean Energy Production Credit is for at least $25 per megawatt hour for the first 10 years the plan is in operation, adjusting for, well, this is beyond my brain power, but anyways, this is all, um, let me see. The credit phases out in 2032. <laughs> I can't believe anybody's gonna be alive in 2032, but okay. Okay. Uh, and I had a red note to myself here, so I'll read this part. It says, worth noting, there's another advanced nuclear production tax credit already on the books. That tax credit was established in the Energy Policy Act of 2005, and it's for $18 per megawatt hour for the first eight years that a nuclear power plant is operating provided the nuclear power plant has not begun construction when the 2005 bill was signed into law. The third reactor unit of the Vogel power plant being constructed in Georgia, well, there, there's a plant in Georgia that's the first one to take advantage of the law, but I don't think that power plant has been constructed yet. So look, if you're in Georgia, look for a, look for Right. Just start scanning the news. You can do a Google alert. I would do a Google alert for nuclear in Georgia. So when the news comes out that they're <laughs> breaking soil in your area, you might be alerted. Okay. But if you, you have to take, you can't get credits for both if you're trying to get credits for both. Okay. Um, and California is in a big bill now over the Diablo Canyon. Diablo. Diablo means devil in Spanish. Okay, and this stuff gets to be way too boring. Okay, okay. So this Inflation Reduction Act provides, and this is where this is where the, the death warrant goes out on the rest of us, right? As a matter of fact, the Department of Energy, by issuing this piece, is basically saying, hey, <laughs> we're going to pay you to help kill these people. <laughs> the I, it, Inflation Reduction Act provides funding for the Department of Energy to guarantee up to $250 billion worth of loans to update, repurpose, and revitalize energy infrastructure that has stopped working 
or that will enable energy infrastructure to keep operating if the upgrade will avoid the release of greenhouse gases. Nuclear infrastructure projects could be eligible for this loan guarantee program. The Department of Energy Loan Guarantee Program provides the capital needed to move forward with a project, reduce finance risk, enabling lower interest rates, and thereby reduce overall project costs. The law includes $700 million that will go towards the research and development of low enrichment uranium fuel sources. That's important because the advanced next-generation reactors, which are currently being developed in 20 countries in the United States, depend on this radioactive fuel to operate. So they're saying, hey, maybe we should do some studies, right? Okay, um, I don't think any studies are going to be done, so I'm not going to waste our time right here. So, um... And then they're, they're doing tax credits for hydrogen. Hydrogen is pretty dangerous. Um, but anyway, so I'm going to close off here. I just wanted to, all these bills are written as tricks, right? It's, it's all just one big trick to go from the treasury into their pockets, right? And for example, um, they're screaming just in the last couple of days that there were, I don't know, $60 trillion of money missing from some uh, federal, um, they have these foreign trade deals called FTXs or something, and um, the foreign trade deals are like short by trillions and trillions of money. Well, let me ask you this, okay? Who is in charge of the money that dominates the world? Just give yourself a second there, right? Would it be the United States, right? The US dollar, right? Everything I've said about the United States, they're the ones who print the money, right? They're the ones who make the big deal about, if you try to print this money, we're going to catch you. The FBI is going to come to your house. Well, <laughs> okay. They print the money. They enforce anybody outside of them printing the money, right? Because they, they put all that stuff in the money so that you just can't easily print it at your home computer and stuff, right? And then they go crazy with stories in the news about people getting caught trying to pass off counterfeit money, right? Well, is this not the best example on the planet of the fox in the hen house? Because they print the money. Now they're, now people are, are, are comparing reports and finding trillions of dollars. The U.S. Department of Defense has never had a balanced budget in the last, what, 10 years or something because so much money goes missing all the time. So, and all of this is tied to the value of the U.S. dollar, which is tied to the entire um, economy which is tied to inflation, which is in a meltdown right now. And I don't know, how could anybody really be sitting there and trusting a single thing that the U.S. government has to say? Well, A, they're, they're trying to kill their own people because of trying to speak out. You'll get some extra doses of uranium in your house. Um, they have the most dangerous medical system in the world as far as the, the, the high death rate. Kids in this country get the highest level of vaccines of anywhere in the world. This has been just an extraordinary marketing plan when you all you have to do is just scratch back the cover just a little tiny bit to see what an absolute horror show is hiding behind that. And I swear that 
you know, 90% of the people here think this is just all about fun, right? And little does anybody know that on the back end of everybody's hard work, these people who despise us, hate us, and are right now actively trying to murder all of us are trying to rob any penny they can get out of the tax money. What is the deal? The money is even fake, yet they're willing to murder and do all this stuff to get to it. So I don't know. There are a bunch of white people on a pretty demonic path to get rid of the rest of us, if you ask me. Just my humble opinion. So goodbye for now. Be safe out there.